Section 17 of Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, Volume 7, by Lucius Maestrius Plutarchus, translated by Bernadette Perrin. Chapters 15 to 27. Chapter 15. Such, then, is said to have been the course of Caesar's life before his Gallic campaigns. But the period of the wars which he afterwards fought, and of the campaigns by which he subjugated Gaul, as if he had made another beginning, and entered upon a different path of life, and one of new achievements, proved him to be inferior as soldier and commander to no one soever of those who have won most admiration for leadership and shown themselves greatest therein. Nay, if one compare him with such men as Fabius, and Scipio, and Metellus, and with the men of his own time or a little before him, like Sulla, Marius, the two Luculi, or even Pompey himself, whose fame for every sort of military excellence was at this time flowering out and reaching to the skies, Caesar will be found to surpass them all in his achievements." one he surpassed in the difficulty of the regions where he waged his wars another in the great extent of country which he acquired another in the multitude and might of the enemies over which he was victorious another in the savage manners and perfidious dispositions of the people whom he conciliated another in his reasonableness and mildness towards his captives another still in the gifts and favors which he bestowed upon his soldiers, and all in the fact that he fought the most battles and killed the most enemies. For although it was not full ten years that he waged war in Gaul, he took by storm more than eight hundred cities, subdued three hundred nations, and fought pitched battles at different times with three million men, of whom he slew one million in hand-to-hand -hand fighting, and took as many more prisoners. Chapter 16. His soldiers showed such good will and zeal in his service, that those who in their previous campaigns had been in no way superior to others, were invincible and irresistible in confronting every danger to enhance Caesar's fame. Such a man, for instance, was Achilles, who in the sea-fight at Massalia boarded a hostile ship and had his right hand cut off with a sword, but clung with the other hand to his shield, and dashing it into the faces of his foes, routed them all and got possession of the vessel. Such a man again was Cassius Sceva, who in the battle at Duracium had his eye struck out with an arrow, his shoulder transfixed with one javelin and his thigh with another, and received on his shield the blows of one hundred and thirty missiles. In this plight he called the enemy to him as though he would surrender. Two of them accordingly coming up, he lopped off the shoulder of one with his sword, smote the other in the face, and put him to flight, and came off safely himself with the aid of his comrades. Again in Britain, when the enemy had fallen upon the foremost centurions, who had plunged into a watery marsh, a soldier, while Caesar in person was watching the battle, dashed into the midst of the fight, 
displayed many conspicuous deeds of daring, and rescued the centurions, after the barbarians had been routed. Then he himself, making his way with difficulty after all the rest, plunged into the muddy current, and at last, without a shield, partly swimming and partly wading, got across. Caesar and his company were amazed, and came to meet the soldier with cries of joy. But he, in great dejection, and with a burst of tears, cast himself at Caesar's feet, begging pardon for the loss of his shield. Again in Africa, Scipio captured a ship of Caesar's, in which Granius Petro, who had been appointed quaestor, was sailing. Of the rest of the passengers, Scipio made booty, but told the quaestor that he offered him his life. Granius, however, remarking that it was the custom with Caesar's soldiers not to receive, but to offer mercy, killed himself with the blow of his sword. Chapter 17 Such spirit and ambition Caesar himself created and cultivated in his men in the first place, because he showed by his unsparing bestowal of rewards and honors that he was not amassing wealth from his wars for his own luxury or for any life of ease, but that he treasured it up carefully as a common prize for deeds of valor, and had no greater share in the wealth than he offered to the deserving among his soldiers, and in the second place by willingly undergoing every danger and refusing no toil. Now, at his love of danger, his men were not astonished, knowing his ambition, but that he should undergo toils beyond his body's apparent power of endurance amazed them, because he was of a spare habit, had a soft and white skin, suffered from distemper in the head, and was subject to epileptic fits, a trouble which first attacked him, we are told, in Cordoba. Nevertheless, he did not make his feeble health an excuse for soft living, but rather his military service a cure for his feeble health, since by wearisome journeys, simple diet, continuously sleeping in the open air, and enduring hardships, he fought off his trouble and kept his body strong against its attacks. Most of his sleep, at least, he got in cars or litters, making his rest conduce to action. And in the daytime he would have himself conveyed to garrisons, cities, or camps. One slave, who was accustomed to write from dictation as he traveled, sitting by his side, and one soldier standing behind him with a sword. And he drove so rapidly that on his first journey from Rome to Gaul, he reached the Rhone in seven days. Horsemanship, moreover, had been easy for him from boyhood, for he was wont to put his hands behind his back, and holding them closely there, to ride his horse at full speed. And in the Gallic campaigns he practiced dictating letters on horseback, and keeping two scribes at once busy, or, as Oppius says, even more. We are told, moreover, that Caesar was the first to devise intercourse with his friends by letter, since he could not wait for personal interviews on urgent matters owing to the multitude of his occupations and the great size of the city. Of his indifference in regard to his diet, the following circumstance also is brought in proof. When the host who was entertaining him and Mediolanum, Valerius Leo, 
served up asparagus dressed with myrrh instead of olive oil. Caesar ate of it without ado, and rebuked his friends when they showed displeasure. Surely, said he, it were enough not to eat what you don't like, but he who finds fault with ill-breeding like this is ill-bred himself. Once, too, upon a journey, he and his followers were driven by a storm into a poor man's hut, and when he found that it consisted of one room only, and that one barely able to accommodate a single person, he said to his friends that honors must be yielded to the strongest, but necessities to the weakest, and bade Oppius lie down there, while he himself with the rest of his company slept in the porch. Chapter 18. But to resume. The first of his Gallic wars was against the Helvetii and Tigurini, who had set fire to their twelve cities and four hundred villages, and were advancing through that part of Gaul which was subject to the Romans, as once the Cimbrian Teutonis had done. To these they were thought to be not inferior in courage, and of equal numbers, being three hundred thousand in all, of whom one hundred and ninety thousand were fighting men. The Tigurini were crushed at the river Arar, not by Caesar himself, but by Labienus, his deputy. The Helvetii, however, unexpectedly attacked Caesar himself on the march, as he was leading his forces towards a friendly city. But he succeeded in reaching a strong place of refuge. Here, after he had collected and arrayed his forces, a horse was brought to him. This horse, said he, I will use for the pursuit after my victory. But now let us go against the enemy, and accordingly led the charge on foot. After a long and hard struggle, he routed the enemy's fighting men, but had the most trouble at their rampart of wagons, where not only did the men themselves make a stand and fight, but also their wives and children defended themselves to the death and were cut to pieces with the men. The battle was hardly over by midnight. To the noble work of victory, Caesar added a nobler still, that of settling those of the barbarians who had escaped alive from the battle, there were more than one hundred thousand of them, and compelling them to resume the territory which they had abandoned, and the cities which they had destroyed, he did this because he feared that if the territory became vacant, the Germans would cross the Rhine and occupy it. Chapter 19 His second war, directly in defense of the Gauls, was against the Germans. Although previously in Rome he had made their king Ariovistus an ally, but they were intolerable neighbors of Caesar's subjects and if an opportunity presented itself, it was thought that they would not remain quietly in their present homes, but would encroach upon and occupy Gaul. Seeing that his officers were inclined to be afraid, and particularly all the young men of high rank who had come out intending to make the campaign with Caesar an opportunity for high living and money-making, he called them together and bade them be off, since they were so unmanly and effeminate, and not force themselves to face danger. As for himself, he said he would take the tenth legion alone and march against the barbarians. The enemy would be no better fighters than the Cimbri, and he himself was no worse a general than Marius. Upon this, the tenth legion sent a deputation to him, expressing their gratitude, 
while the other legions reviled their own commanders and all the army now full of impetuous eagerness followed caesar on a march of many days and at last encamped within two hundred furlongs of the enemy now the very approach of caesar somewhat shattered the purpose of ariovistus for he did not expect that the romans would attack the germans whose onset he thought they could not withstand and he was amazed at the boldness of caesar besides he saw that his own army was disturbed still more too was the spirit of the germans blunted by the prophecies of their holy women who used to foretell the future by observing the eddies in the rivers and by finding signs in the whirlings and splashings of the waters and now forbade joining battle before a new moon gave its light when caesar learned this and saw that the germans kept quiet he decided that it was a good plan to engage them while they were out of heart rather than to sit still and wait for their time so by attacking their entrenchments and the hills on which they were encamped he irritated them and incited them to come down in anger and fight the issue out they were signally routed and caesar pursued them a distance of four hundred furlongs as far as the rhine and filled all the intervening plain with dead bodies and spoils ariovistus with a few followers succeeded in crossing the rhine his dead are said to have been eighty thousand in number chapter twenty after this achievement caesar left his forces among the sequani to spend the winter while he himself desirous of giving attention to matters at rome came down to gaul along the po which was the part of the province assigned to him for the river called rubicon separates the rest of italy from cisalpine gaul here he fixed his quarters and carried on his political schemes many came to see him and he gave each one what he wanted and sent all away in actual possession of some of his favors and hoping for more and during all the rest of the time of his campaign in gaul unnoticed by pompey he was alternately subduing the enemy with the arms of the citizens or capturing and subduing the citizens with the money which he got from the enemy but when he heard that the belgae who were the most powerful of the gauls and occupied the third part of all their country had revolted and had assembled unknown myriads of armed men he turned back at once and marched thither with great speed he fell upon the enemy as they were plundering the gauls that were in alliance with rome and so routed and destroyed the least scattered and most numerous of them after a disgraceful struggle on their part that the romans could cross lakes and deep rivers for the multitude of dead bodies in them all the rebels who dwelt along the ocean submitted without a battle against the nervii however the most savage and warlike of the people in these parts caesar led his forces the nervii who dwelt in dense woods and had placed their families and possessions in a recess of the forest at farthest removed from the enemy at a time when caesar was fortifying a camp and did not expect the battle fell upon him suddenly sixty thousand strong they routed his cavalry and surrounded the seventh and twelfth legions and slew all their centurions and had not caesar snatched a shield 
made his way through the combatants in front of him, and hurled himself upon the barbarians, and had not the tenth legion, at sight of his peril, run down from the heights and cut the ranks of the enemy to pieces. Not a Roman, it is thought, would have survived. As it was, however, owing to Caesar's daring, they fought beyond their powers, as the saying is, and even then did not rout the Nervii, but cut them down as they defended themselves. For out of sixty thousand, only five hundred are said to have come off alive, and only three of their senators out of four hundred. Chapter 21 The Roman Senate, on learning of these successes, decreed sacrifices to the gods and cessation from business with festival for fifteen days, a greater number than for any victory before. For the danger was seen to have been great when so many nations at once had broken out in revolt, and because Caesar was the victor, the good will of the multitude towards him made his victory more splendid. Caesar himself, after settling matters in Gaul, again spent the winter in the regions along the Po, carrying out his plans at Rome, for not only did the candidates for office there enjoy his assistance, and win their elections by corrupting the people with money from him, and do everything which was likely to enhance his power, but also most of the men of highest rank and greatest influence came to see him at Lucca, including Pompey, Crassus, Appius, the governor of Sardinia, and Naples, the proconsul of Spain, so that there were a hundred and twenty lictors in the place, and more than two hundred senators. They held a council and settled matters on the following basis. Pompey and Crassus were to be elected consuls for the ensuing year, and Caesar was to have money voted him, besides another five years in his provincial command, this seemed very strange to men of understanding. For those who were getting so much money from Caesar urged the Senate to give him money as if he had none. Nay, rather, they forced it to do so, though it groaned over its own decrees. Cato, indeed, was not there, for he had purposely been sent out of the way on a mission to Cyprus, and Favonius, who was an ardent follower of Cato, finding himself unable to accomplish anything by his opposition, bounded out of doors and clamored to the populace. But no one gave heed to him, for some were in awe of Pompey and Crassus, and most wanted to please Caesar, lived in hopes of his favors, and so kept quiet. Chapter 22 on returning to his forces in Gaul, Caesar found a considerable war in the country, since two great German nations had just crossed the Rhine to possess the land, one called the Eusipes and the other the Ten Terite. Concerning the battle which was fought with them, Caesar says in his commentaries that the barbarians, while treating with him under a truce, attacked on their march, and therefore routed his five thousand cavalry with their eight hundred, since his men were taken off their guard, that they then sent other envoys to him who tried to deceive him again, but he held them fast, and led his army against the barbarians, considering that good faith towards such faithless breakers of truces was folly. 
But Tanusius says that when the Senate voted sacrifices of rejoicing over the victory, Cato pronounced the opinion that they ought to deliver up Caesar to the barbarians, thus purging away the violation of the truce in behalf of the city, and turning the curse, therefore, on the guilty man. Of those who had crossed the Rhine into Gaul, 400,000 were cut to pieces, and the few who succeeded in making their way back were received by the Sugambri, a German nation. This action Caesar made a ground of complaint against the Sugambri, and besides he coveted the fame of being the first man to cross the Rhine with an army. He therefore began to bridge the river, although it was very broad, and at that point in its course, especially swollen, rough, and impetuous, and with the trunks and branches of trees which it bore downstream, kept smiting and tearing away the supports of his bridge. But Caesar caught up these trunks and branches with bulwarks of great timbers planted across the stream, and having thus bridled and yoked the dashing current, he brought his bridge, sight beyond all credence, to completion in ten days. Chapter 23 he now threw his forces across the river. No one ventured to oppose him, but even the Suevi, who were the foremost nation of the Germans, bestowed themselves and their belongings in deep and woody defiles. Caesar ravaged the country of the enemy with fire, and gave encouragement to the constant friends of Rome, and then retired again into Gaul, having spent eighteen days in Germany. His expedition against the Britanni was celebrated for its daring, for he was the first to launch a fleet upon the western ocean and to sail through the Atlantic Sea, carrying an army to wage war. The island was of incredible magnitude, and furnished much matter of dispute to multitudes of writers, some of whom averred that its name and story had been fabricated, since it never had existed and did not then exist. And in his attempt to occupy it, he carried the Roman supremacy beyond the confines of the inhabited world. After twice crossing to the island from the opposite coast of Gaul, and in many battles damaging the enemy, rather than enriching his own men, for there was nothing worth taking from men who lived in poverty and wretchedness, he brought the war to an end, which was not to his liking, it is true. Still, he took hostages from the king, imposed tributes, and then sailed away from the island. In Gaul, he found letters which were about to be sent across to him. They were from his friends in Rome, and advised him of his daughter's death. She died in childbirth at Pompey's house. Great was the grief of Pompey and great the grief of Caesar, and their friends were greatly troubled, too. They felt that the relationship which alone kept the distempered state in harmony and concord was now dissolved, for the babe also died presently, after surviving its mother a few days. Now Julia, in spite of the tribunes, was carried by the people, to the Campus Martius, where her funeral rites were held, and where she lies buried, Chapter 24. Caesar's forces were now so large that he was forced to distribute them in many winter quarters, 
while he himself, as his custom was, turned his steps towards Italy. Then all Gaul once more broke out in revolt, and great armies went about attacking the entrenchments and trying to destroy the winter quarters of the Romans. The most numerous and powerful of the rebels, under Abriorix, utterly destroyed Titurius and Cotta, together with their army, while the legion under Cicero was surrounded and besieged by sixty thousand of them, and narrowly escaped having its camp taken by storm, although all were wounded and went beyond their powers in the ardor of their defense. When tidings of these things reached Caesar, who was far on his journey, he turned back quickly, got together seven thousand men in all, and hurried on to extricate Cicero from the siege. But the besiegers became aware of his approach, and went to meet him with the purpose of cutting his forces off at once, despising their small numbers. Caesar deceived them by avoiding battle continually, and when he had found a place suitable for one who was fighting against many, with few, fortified a camp, where he kept his men altogether from fighting, and forced them to increase the height of their ramparts, and the defenses of their gates, as though they were afraid. His strategy thus led the enemy to despise him, until at last, when their boldness led them to attack in scattered bands, he sallied out, routed them, and destroyed many of them. Chapter 25 The numerous revolts of the Gauls in those parts were quieted by this success as well as by the fact that Caesar himself during the winter went about in all directions and kept close watch on the disturbers of the peace. For there had come from Italy three legions to replace the men that he had lost, Pompey having lent two of those under his command, and one having been newly levied in Gaul about the Po. But in remoter regions the germs of the greatest and most dangerous of the wars waged in those parts began to show themselves. They had for a long time been secretly sown and cultivated by the most influential men among the most warlike tribes, and derived strength from large bodies of young men assembled from all sides in arms, from great riches brought together, from strong cities, and from countries which were hard to invade. At that season of winter, too, frozen rivers, forests buried in snow, plains converted into lakes by winter torrents, in some parts paths obliterated by deep snow, and in others the great uncertainty of a march through swamps, and streams diverted from their courses, all seemed to make it wholly impossible for Caesar to oppose the plans of the rebels. Accordingly, many tribes had revolted, but the head and front of the revolt were the Arverni and the Carnuntini, and Vergentorix was chosen to have the entire authority in the war. His father the Gauls had put to death because they thought he was aiming at a tyranny. Chapter 26 this leader then, after dividing his forces into many parts and putting many officers in command of them, was winning over all the country round about as far as the watershed of the Arar. He purposed, now that there was a coalition at Rome against Caesar, at once to rouse all Gaul to war. If he had done this a little later, when Caesar was involved in the civil war, 
Italy would have been a prey to terrors no less acute than those aroused by the Cimbri of old. But, as it was, the man endowed by nature to make the best use of all the arts of war, and particularly of its crucial moments, namely Caesar, as soon as he learned of the revolt, set out and marched, by the same roads over which he had previously come, and by the vigor and speed of his passage in so severe a winter, showed the barbarians that an unconquered and invincible army was coming against them. For where it was incredible that one of his messengers or letter-carriers could make his way in a long time, there he was seen with his whole army, at once ravaging their lands and destroying their strongholds, subduing cities and receiving those who came over to his side, until the nation of the Edui also entered the war against him. These, up to this time, had called themselves brethren of the Romans, and had been conspicuously honored, but now, by joining the rebels, they caused great dejection in Caesar's army. In consequence of this, Caesar removed from those parts and passed across the territory of the Lingones, wishing to reach the country of the Sequani, who were friends, and stood as a bulwark between Italy and the rest of Gaul. There the enemy fell upon him and surrounded him with many tens of thousands, so that he essayed to fight a decisive battle. In the main he got the best of the struggle, and after a long time and much slaughter, overpowered the barbarians. But it appears that at first he met with some reverse, and the Arverni show a short sword hanging in a temple, which they say was captured from Caesar, when Caesar himself saw it at a later time, he smiled, and though his friends urged him to have it taken down, he would not permit it, considering it sacred. Chapter 27 However, the most of the barbarians who escaped at that time took refuge with their king in the city of Alasia, and while Caesar was besieging this city, which was thought to be impregnable, by reason of the great size of its walls and the number of their defenders, there fell upon him from outside the city a peril too great for words to depict. For all that was mightiest among the nations of Gaul assembled and came in arms to Alasia, three hundred thousand strong, and the number of fighting men inside the city was not less than a hundred and seventy thousand. Thus Caesar, caught between so large hostile forces and besieged there, was compelled to build two walls for his protection, one looking towards the city and the other towards those who had come up to relieve it. He felt that if the two forces should unite, his cause was wholly lost. For many reasons then, and naturally, Caesar's peril at Alasia was famous since it produced more deeds of skill and daring than any of his other struggles. But one must be amazed above all that he engaged and conquered so many tens of thousands outside the city without the knowledge of those inside, nay more, without the knowledge even of the Romans who were guarding the wall that faced the city. For these did not learn of the victory until the wailing of the men in Alasia and the lamentations of the women were heard, as they beheld in the quarters of the enemy many shields adorned with gold and silver, 
many corslets smeared with blood, and also drinking cups and tents of Gallic fashion, carried by the Romans into their camp. So quickly did so great a force, like a phantom or a dream, disperse and vanish out of sight, the greater part of them having fallen in the battle. Those who held Alasia, too, after giving themselves and Caesar no small trouble, finally surrendered, and the leader of the whole war, Virgentorix, after putting on his most beautiful armor and decorating his horse, rode out through the gate. He made a circuit round Caesar, who remained seated, and then leaped down from his horse, stripped off his suit of armor, and seating himself at Caesar's feet, remained motionless, until he was delivered up to be kept in custody for the triumph. End of section 17